Radio Mano Papachango. So I'm just back from New York City, which is a real trip down memory lane for me. I lived there in the 80s for a few years. So uh, I walk around that town and I've got memories all over the place. Things I don't think about, <clears throat> you know, in my normal life. I walk down a street and it's like, oh, wait, I remember, yeah, a woman in 1987, who lived in that apartment right there and we had sex while she was leaning out that window. I mean, weird stuff that comes back. Um, yeah, New York, that was crazy. I just flew out for two nights. Uh, Neil Strauss uh, convinced his publisher to fly me out there for reasons that still aren't complete, completely clear to me um, uh, because he certainly doesn't need me to help him promote his new book, The Truth. Uh, but I'm doing what I can because it's an amazing book. I wouldn't normally recommend a book that I'm only halfway through, but uh, in this case, I know how it ends because I know the guy who wrote it. And uh, I met him when he was going through a lot of the things that he describes in this book. I didn't really know it. We, Interestingly, we didn't really talk very much about what he was going through uh I mean, we did, but but reading the book, I have a a perspective on Neil and um, a context, I guess. I guess I didn't really see the context. I knew a bit about his personal life. You know, I've visited him in two different houses he's lived in. I've met his girlfriend. I met some of his friends, people he works with. Um, but I didn't really understand what was going on until I read this book. It's it's an incredible book. It's like a lot of people, probably a lot of you listening to me right now are saying, what, you're Chris Ryan's friends with Neil Strauss? What the fuck is that? Neil Strauss is the guy who wrote The Game, that sleazy pickup bullshit. The, and I have to be honest with you, that was what I thought when I first heard of Neil and The Game and nagging and all that bullshit. And like most people, I assumed that the game was a book of advocacy uh, for those sorts of techniques of tricking people into doing something they don't want to do. And I guess to some extent it is because Neil uh, learned the techniques and became very good at them. And, and let's face it, it changed his life. Not only in the sense that he wrote a book that went on to sell into the millions of copies, uh, which, of course, has huge financial and career repercussions, um, but also in the sense that uh, he learned to be comfortable around women, and that led him to meet the woman who then really uh, triggered all sorts of revolutionary changes in his life, who he's now married to. They just had a baby 10 months ago. Um Ingrid and uh, yeah well that's what the truth is okay so the game is a book about trying to overcome your awkwardness and your shyness and all this kind of stuff in order to be comfortable around women and meet women impress women and you know make yourself more attractive to women the truth is where did all those insecurities come from in the first place What's the nature of this insecurity? And when you do sort of get over that hurdle of being able to talk to women and meeting then what? Then what do you do? How do you maintain a relationship? What is a relationship? What's a healthy relationship? Where do our ideas about the nature of relationships come from? Uh, it's one of the most courageous books I've read. And as I say, I'm only halfway through it, but I know this guy. And reading the book as an author, I'm amazed at his balls.
I'm amazed at the things that he puts down on the page. Um, and the courage isn't just his, it's Ingrid's as well. A lot of her life is in those pages. Very, very private things are in those pages. And, uh, well, the two of them have my admiration. So I'm bumping the other guests that were lined up um, in order to bring you my conversation with Neil Strauss that I just had yesterday. We also did an event at the Strand Bookstore in New York, which, of course, was the reason I was in New York. And um, that was recorded as well. Uh, Danny Osment, who does the sound engineering for this show, totally voluntarily, by the way, if anyone out there needs a sound engineer for any reason, please get in touch with Danny. His uh, company is called Emerald City Productions, and the website is emeraldcitypro.com. Uh, in any case, uh, I did record the event with uh, Neil and uh, Esther Perel, who is the author of Mating in Captivity, a great book. She's a, a therapist. She's been working with couples for 30 years, I think she said. Um, she's got a lot of insights into monogamy, relationship, uh, what makes them work, what makes them fail, what who's an appropriate uh, partner, and all these sorts of things. So we had a very interesting conversation. Um, Danny hasn't had a chance to deal with that file yet, and it's really important, I think, that it be remastered because I set up my recorder in the back of the room. So if I just slapped it in here now, it, it wouldn't sound very good. So once Danny gets to that, I'll um, I'll upload that later this week as sort of a bonus episode. So in this episode, you hear me chatting with Neil at 6.30 in the morning, uh, which you know, very cool. You got to, you got to leave the hotel at seven 30 in the morning for your flight. You get up an hour early so you can record a podcast. Thanks, Neil. I can't say that I would do the same thing, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad he was willing. Uh, I mean, I can't say I would do the same thing if I were him, right? Obviously I did if I were me, which I am. So I'm just going to slip this episode in, uh, quickly and hopefully entice some of you to pick up Neil's book this week. It's very important when a book comes out to sell a lot at the beginning, first week or two, because then that gets you on the bestseller list, and then that attracts more media, and then there's a snowballing effect. So timing is important. If you think this is a book you'd like to read, I'd really encourage you to go out and buy it or order it right away in order to uh, to help Neil, you know, give him a little bit of a of a Ryan bump. <laughs> It'll be a tiny little bump. Uh, but, uh, you know, whatever we can do for Neil is is well worth doing. As you'll hear, he's a very sincere, very thoughtful guy. Uh, he's got sort of a bad rap uh, because of the game. But, uh, you know, that's that's what it's like to be a public figure. You can't control what people think of you or say about you or write about you. You just hope for the best and do what you do and try to be true to your own uh, your own vision. And uh, and Neil's certainly done that. Reading the book is 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 strange because you're reading about this guy who's got a lot of insecurities, a lot of. Um, fucked up stuff from his childhood, weird parental uh, influences and all this kind of thing. But we've all got that, right? We've all got the insecurities. We've all got weird shit from our childhood that we thought, you know, kids think that shit's normal. Kids, there's this movie out right now called Room about a woman who's kidnapped by a, uh, what would you even call him? A, a rapist who, who hides her in a, locked garage and she has a baby and and it's all about her and the and the kid and the kid thinks that room is the world he doesn't know anything outside of that room so for the kid the room is kind of miraculous and wondrous that's his world and we're all like that we all grow up in these families that we think are normal and it's not until you get out and you go visit your friends and see how their family interacts and that you can look back at your family and say, wow, maybe it's not so normal. Maybe something's fucked up in my family. And therefore, maybe something's fucked up in me. Maybe the way I view the world isn't the way the world is. Maybe the things I've been taught to believe about myself aren't even true. 
So it's a strange thing reading this book and knowing Neil as well as I do because you're reading about a guy riddled with insecurity, but imagine the strength and security that it takes to write that for the public. So it's almost like, you know, seeing a painting, a self-portrait of a man without arms, and you're like, wow, that's a painting of a man without arms, but it's a self-portrait, so how the fuck did he paint that if he doesn't have any arms, you know? That's what this book is like to read. It's like, with this, the voice in this book is the voice of a guy who's almost paralyzed with ambivalence and and self-doubt, and yet the person who could write this kind of a book is extremely strong, extremely focused, extremely talented. It's a funny book. It's a touching book. There are lines that will make you laugh. I was laughing on the plane last night, laughing my ass off. And there are sections that will make you close the book and close your eyes so that tears don't come down your face. It's that powerful. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Neil Strauss, and I hope it will encourage you to uh, to buy a copy of the book, maybe buy some for friends as well. It's um, It's really an extraordinary piece of work. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy this, and I will catch you next week. No ads, no no reminders to support the podcast. I know you all know how to do that. So if you want to do it, please do. And uh, But really, this week is all for Neil. So if you want to support the podcast, buy a copy of his book through my Amazon affiliate link, and you'll be killing two of us birds with one stone. This is The Mark of a Good Man by friend of the podcast, Bimini Road. Semi-conscious with Neil Strauss. That's what we'll call this. Semi-conscious with Neil Strauss. You can hear the sleep in your voice. <laughs> Fuck, man. I'm, I am semi-conscious. It's uh, 6.45 in the morning. Which is 3.45 in the morning oh, in your normal right. time zone. Yeah. yeah but, you know, I've done the transatlantic thing so much that east coast to west coast, I don't even, right. I don't even think about it.
I'm a, I'm a travel-hardened motherfucker. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you can hear the resilience in your voice. <laughs> it travels softened. So, uh, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thanks for coming out here. Well, yeah, I, I don't. You didn't need me at all. I, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm glad to be here. You were great, and it was fascinating, and everyone loved it. It was fun. Yeah. So last night, Neil and I did an event with uh, Esther Perel, who I kept calling Esther because uh-huh. I'm thinking in Spanish. Right. You know, I've got there's certain words. I've been in Spain so long. There's certain words that just in, they come out in Spanish, which sounds pretentious as fuck, but it actually like IKEA, the Swedish furniture store. Right. Right. Never, you know, because I was in Spain when that whole thing had happened, you know, Ikea. What is it? Ikea? Ikea. Ikea, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah anyway, that was interesting. That was, uh, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was so, so what we did last night, uh, I have a new book out, and there was an event at the Strand, which is one of the greatest bookstores in the world, yeah. and in the Rare Books Room, which is even more incredible, and everyone who's coming is already getting a copy of my book. So right. well, I don't need to talk to him about the book. I thought, why not turn him on to two of my favorite uh, authors on subjects related to the book? And so uh, I invited Chris to come out, and Chris just kind of fake-finished his book and turned it into his editor. <laughs> to my agent. To your, to, to your agent, yeah, or not even your editor. Not to the editor, no, no. You don't need to buy time with your agent, though. Uh, no, no, but I think... The way I was feeling was my agent, you know, sent me an email and it's like, well, it's the quarterly, you know, fall check in to see what's going on. And I, I started to feel like maybe he was getting nervous that I was completely full of shit and I hadn't written anything. Right. So I thought, you know, because I told him I've got 100,000 words, right? And it's going to be 110 and then I'm going to go start cutting. And, and uh, so I just wanted to send it to him to put his mind at ease that, right. you know, he wasn't being taken for a ride. Uh that writers develop all sorts of uh, tricks to sort of appease. It's really like a, the kid with the dog ate my homework thing, but yeah. here's a piece of my homework, the dog ate the other piece, I'm going to go back and see if I can get it from the dog. Right. The piece the dog ate's much better. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> so here's the piece, you know, I rewrote the piece the dog ate, but yeah. if you give me till tomorrow, I'll make it even better. Like, you, you really develop all kinds of strategies to, uh, to somehow still get it in at the last minute, but keep the editor appeased. I'm must be way past editor. the last minute. Uh-huh. I'm years past the last right. minute. Yeah. And, and by the way, and, and so was I. This book was scheduled, uh, it's October as we're doing this, so, and this book was scheduled to come out, like, uh, maybe a year ago. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. yeah, I remember actually yeah. talking with you about it when you were working on but, it. But it's the process. The truth is, like, you're dealing with, like you said, 100 to over 100,000 words, um, and, also, you're dealing with these ideas that change and morph, and there's, there's just no way to yeah. predict it. Usually, what you can, all you can predict is going to take, it's going to take longer than you think it will. A lot longer, yeah. Well, and you don't know, you know, someone said, some, one of those famous writer sayings was, I write to find out what I think. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I don't, I mean, with the, the, the new book. Uh, the Truth. Yes. You got to keep keep using the title, man. Right. Neil Strauss, strangely enough, is not uh, real keyed into self promotion. Yeah. I, I, there are so many things about you that are the opposite of your public image. Right. And that's one of them. <laughs> wow. No? Don't yeah. you think so? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's true. Yeah. And most people think of you as a relentless self promoter. You know, uh, the game, the the what's it called? The, your your community of your. Quarterly oh, events, no, the, you know, society. the society, right. and your email list, and your this and your that. I, I think most people would say, "Oh, that guy's like super." You know, he's the Tim Ferriss of pickup artists. You know, <laughs> the Tim Ferriss of boning, <laughs> right? Of what? No, I don't know. I don't know the Tim Ferriss of boning or something. But it's funny because I really like see. I don't see my. It's funny because I get compared to people, and, and Tim's great, and Tim's a friend. Yeah. But uh, like my like the people I admire are. You know, fiction writers from, you know, mostly dead fiction writers. <laughs> you admire them because they're dead? Uh, just like they're, just like dead no, just because they're mostly dead. <laughs> 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 um, so, uh, what was I starting to say? Something about the new book. Oh, 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 I re- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Changes. Uh, yeah, so, so one thing that happened, and, and, and the new 
the new book, The Truth, the truth. <laughs> available at fine bookstores near you, is a... Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you where you can find it. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> the answer is the book will find you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, Chris is talking about, I, you do these interviews for... Uh, you go on like a satellite radio t- tour and satellite TV tour, you just sit yeah. in a room and one by one they just each talk to you and every interview they kept saying, well, where can we find your book? And I'm like... It's a fucking book. Like, if yeah. you, if you, honestly, if you can't like do an internet search, it's like. I, so I didn't. I, I was sort of. I didn't want to like just be self promotional and say, "Here's my website." I just. I never want to say the words www on you know yeah. or, or .com on on yeah. in public. Um, so so uh, and and but I felt like I was I was like 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 being snide about it by like saying. You got surly. Yeah, surly. Or just like it just was, it seemed like a stupid stupid question though. If you think it's all how you see things, they were really giving me an opportunity to, to yeah. get across whatever message I wanted, and I right. was being. Um, so you were being the prima donna star, which you have spent most of your career on the other side of the microphone right. from. Yeah, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't say prima donna star. I was I'm actually just giving you shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually. Uh, okay, then yes, prima donna star. <laughs> I know. I think I'll tell you what. Let's. Where were we? <laughs> we were talking about how the writing process is surprising to the writer and how you yes, a book okay. changes as you write it. Yeah, you know, and, I, and if I think about that, to be totally honest, I think there's sort of like, I, I think there's some, I feel like it's their job to promote the book. It's my job just to answer the questions and talk about it. Mm. It's the host's job to do that. And I think it's not, uh, I don't want to say like classless, it's cheap, it's not, you know, to, to sort of desperate to, mm. to, uh, to sort of promote oneself, and maybe that's probably a false belief. I'm sure a lot of people will agree with that, that it's a false belief. But, uh, but I, was like, I think that's their, their job. My job is just to convey their thoughts and ideas and help people think and so on. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so as I was writing this book, and this book, tell me what this book's about, Chris, you're so much better at it. It's a love story. There you go. It's, it's a love about story. a man. It's about a man who is searching uh, for happiness and love and self-acceptance and meaning and uh, as was the truth, or, or as was the game, I would right. say, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, as are we all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're, I, and see, this is another thing where I think you're, you're like 180 degrees from a lot of the public perception of you, which is, I, I got into this a little bit last night at the Strand, where, you know, you, I think the public image of you is, based on the game, is someone who is... Um, kind of uh, what's the word? Uh, <laughs> Did you just say? Yeah, it, well, well, there's a predatory thing, right, in the game, right? Because right? it's all about getting what you want from someone who doesn't necessarily want to give it to you, right? So it's it's uh, like you know how to win friends, influence people, and fuck reluctant women, and yet in person, as a as a human being, you're incredibly sincere and self-aware and you know you're a complicated guy but it's not complicated in the sense I've never felt you were trying to manipulate me in fact I felt the opposite I've often wondered like why is Neil so generous to me why is Neil inviting me to this great party like you know what's in it for him I'm not he hangs with all these famous people I'm not famous so my experience of you is the opposite of what most people would expect I think yeah and I'm not unique I think I think the secret is just you lower their expectations so low that anything you do, like a normal, like as a normal person, would become so impressive, <laughs> right? So, so that's the well, secret. No, but seriously, yeah. why? Like, here's here's why. Here's yeah, here's, okay. here's here's what I think. I don't actually. I have no idea, but I'll just no, like, take, take you guys shot, back yeah. to what you're saying. And by the way, uh, <laughs> just just to clarify, I mean everything you're saying about the game is right, but I think at some point, obviously, it's not like reluctant because it sounds very. Uh, Oh, rapey? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's more like, it, at least in my mind, and again, not, not defending it, because I think there's a lot wrong with the culture. There's a difference between the game and the book and the culture that the book covers. Right, right. And it, they get mashed together. Right. Because um, even within the book, uh, you know, it begins with the main guy who invented this concept of the neg, which is, uh, you know, about to commit suicide. So it's not really an advocacy, per se. Right. Though, though it's been taken as such. And um, wait, I, I keep cutting off thoughts. I forgot. I know. The, the, remind me to get back to the, remind me to get back to the first question in a second. <laughs> what the fuck was it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, how no, you're the, so the different from but, what people but, think. But you were just saying 
uh, oh yeah, and I said I, I thought I knew why, and now I think I forgot. We should never do this, this, this interview this early in the morning again. But no, here's a, um, let's see, expectations are low. I don't fucking know. I don't even know. I, I really have, I really, I, I had it all figured out. So let me ask you another oh, question. You know what it is? Oh, what? I, was okay. gonna say, I, think, right. I think the game was largely a book about fear of the opposite sex. Right. You know, it's really a book about male insecurity. To me, and I right. wrote as much for guys as for women, right. and being a New York Times writer at the time, there was a journalistic thing. There's this bizarre world, but also, like, honestly, I was seduced by it, just frankly, as a guy who who was, 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 was really lonely, and all of a sudden, these guys offered me the keys to feeling like I was accepted and liked, and, Dealing with low self-esteem, like you know, all the, all this stuff. So I really did get seduced by it. But also, I'm just pointing the world as it was. Like there was nothing I sort of changed, and nothing I wouldn't cover because it was odious. It's like, okay, here's this guy who has this philosophy. It's a horror philosophy, but I'm telling it to you because this is part of this community, and there's a dark side to it. And right. so I really kind of covered it in that way. But suddenly, everything became like, an, you know. Somehow in the media, it all became an endorsement of it versus just. Well, but you did transform yourself according to those principles, right? You became style. Well, well, not again, like for sure, according to some of the principles, not according to others. Uh-huh. Like in other words, um, I mean, some people had such odious philosophies that I don't even want to repeat them. Right. Uh, but they were covered in the book because I'm like, this is a side of this world and it's ugly, you know. Um, but. At the same time, by the way, the things that I even thought were good, I don't think are good anymore about right. that world. Right. So, uh, but the point being that um, a book that was largely really about and motivated by fear of the opposite sex, be- uh, fear of women, became now an excuse to fear men. So it didn't, maybe I don't know if it helped. <laughs> you know, I think it helped a lot of people. I think I had guys come up to me and at the signing last night, someone's like, I'm a psychologist because of this book. And a lot of people met their, their wives because of it or transformed and to me it was a book about change it was I was always a guy who I didn't I didn't realize that you could change or you could transform or you could make these decisions and these things were available to you uh you know it was it was a shallow route to self-esteem in some way through the use of other people which is in the negative side of it um but the positive side of it was that you don't have to accept how you are if you're not happy with it your brain is plastic and you can make decisions to change and there are tools and resources out there that one can use to live a better life yeah which is what this book's about too right. yeah it's this a, book yeah it's this a book, deeper change yeah this book if anything is about what the game should have been <laughs> right i do feel like it's what the game should have been if i just done this book i wouldn't have needed the game which is a lot of it's about self esteem as they say, like self-esteem from the inside out instead of from the outside in. Right. Um, and again, like, there's a philosophy that basically in psychology that anytime you feel like you're less than somebody else or better than somebody else, both sides of that are the same dysfunction. Yeah. Right? Because we're all equal. No, yeah. matter, no matter whether it's we're talking about somebody in, in, in prison for doing something horrible or somebody who's humanitarian of the year, as human beings, we're all equal. Yeah, and so anytime you're you're out of that, out of line with that, there's evidence that you're not in reality. You're right. undercompensating, overcompensating. So what's that? How does that illuminate fame? Because it doesn't mean that I don't know who's a famous person. Jack Nicholson. I don't know. Uh, it does. It doesn't mean that he or, or uh, like who's somebody who's kind of more you know Johnny Depp. Uh, it, it, he's better at acting than us, but he's not a better person, human being, or more valuable human being than right. us. That's and yet, his whole life, every minute of every day, the message he's receiving is that he is better. I mean, the, re- the message he might be receiving is that I think we have this, definitely have this addiction to significance yeah. as, as human beings, and maybe he's getting the message that he's more significant. But in the grand scheme of things, obviously, even like whatever you'd say, you know, Bob Dylan in, you know, a few hundred years, maybe no one will know who that is. It's all, you know, it's all, yeah. it's all ridiculous. We quest so hard for significance. It's yeah. meaningless. That's the issue with social media. Like, it's MSG for your sense of significance. We right. get so obsessed with it. Yeah. Yeah, it is a strange thing. I, I, uh, I was ta- trying to explain this on the podcast. You know, my taste of fame is a fraction of, of what yours has been. And 
you know, and yours is a fraction of what you've seen in other people, right? right. I mean, you've right. spent time with Tom Cruise and Russell Brand and people like that. And the thing I came up with was that fame is like um, is like wine that only gets you drunk while it's in your mouth. So as <laughs> soon great. as you swallow it, you're okay. But if you hold it in your mouth, because it does taste great, but you hold it in your mouth, and that's where the ego starts to inflate. Yeah, you know. So like someone comes up to you and says, "Oh my God, man, your book changed my life." You want to acknowledge that because that's a real experience someone's had, and that's cool. But it, but once you start to get puffed up from it, then you're completely fucked. Right, and then you just think. I mean, the thing is, yes, I wrote a book that changed somebody's life, and he's it, that's, that's, that just means I wrote a book that changed someone. Doesn't mean anything about. Yeah, Me about him you. and he's, he's, It almost yeah. doesn't even involve you. Right, Because right. that book, you wrote that book 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I said it was, I feel sometimes like Michael Jordan's father and people come up and say, oh, you must be so proud. It's like, well, what did I do? I fucked some woman, you know, 30 years ago and now this guy can jump higher than anyone <laughs> right. else. What's that right. really have to do with right, me? Right, 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 exactly. Know? I really think a lot, of, a lot of the key to, you know, is, I, I haven't said a lot of Buddhism, but I'd like to because I think non-attachment yeah. is really the key. Even when I was doing this tour, uh, it's 10 years after the game, um, I just thought, well, I gotta, I can't just like the game because I wrote it, or not like the game, or I feel. I thought when I'm answering questions about the game, I gotta think as if it's a book I didn't write. Yeah. What are my real feelings on it? Right. Okay. Uh, and, and answer the questions that way, which is, hey, I like the book. It's a great story. Uh, the community it covers has a lot of things wrong with it, and any sort of manipulation is not a good thing. Yeah. So I had, I had to sort of like just think, okay, well, how would I feel about it if I just read it with no attachment to the fact that I did it, no defending it, all that stuff. Here's a quick interesting note on, on fame. I interviewed Bruce Springsteen because I write, I, that's what I do and always been in my life is interviewing people for Rolling Stone and the New York Times. Yeah. And he had a great quote. He said, because was, he was talking about being in therapy, and I said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, why is that? And I couldn't understand then why someone would be in therapy because I thought I was completely normal. <laughs> then this book is about really finding out that what I thought was completely normal is not, like, you just don't know your own story. You think it's normal mm. because you didn't, you, that's the only, you only grew up one way. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there's nothing to compare it to, especially in the early years of your life. Right. It's like nobody has yeah. an accent. Yeah. Nobody thinks they have an accent. Yeah. Oh, I have yeah. a question for you. So let's get back to about human beings uh, being born. So okay. I'm just going to put a button there. Hold that and go back to Bruce okay. Springsteen. Yeah. He said that the, the leap of consciousness it takes to go from playing in your garage to playing for 50,000 people is not something the human psyche is meant to handle. Right. And he's like, and, and, it, and it isn't. Like, it's just not normal and so it really does take a lot of work and what I learned I did a book called Everyone Loves You When You're Dead because mm. they interviewed all these celebrities and they all felt they didn't feel like they actually didn't feel oh I'm so famous I'm Johnny Depp or I'm uh, even say Chuck Berry the inventor of rock and roll does Chuck Berry feel like he invented rock and roll mm. does he do you think I have no idea what Chuck Berry feels no he thinks yeah. like everyone's like stupid because there's just he was just playing music right. and all these other great musicians were also playing music and he was kind of right. following their footsteps he doesn't even Get that concept. Well, is that the muse? Do you think? And, oh, let me add one yeah, more thing. Yeah, yeah. And all he thinks is that everybody hates him because you know he was arrested for you know bringing a minor across state lines and oh, right. whatever it was the '60s. Yeah. So he just thinks like, God, everyone hates me. I just feel like I should donate to charity so they'll, so they'll like me more. Like, and 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 uh, and so he's just. Uh, so the theory is that fame, money, the sense of the game, sex. Uh, these things won't won't fix any of your problems. They'll just amplify what's already wrong with you. Right. You feel like an undeserving fraud. You feel, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. And now you're, ex- now you're exposed on a much bigger level. So whatever little, because everything's at a higher level when you're performing for people, when there's more attention on you, everything's at a higher level. So it includes opening up your flaws and insecurities and fears at a higher level. Yeah. So treat them now. Well, you read stuff about yourself in, in the media. You, see, you seem cool with it. You've shown me a couple of reviews that have you know, taken some shots at you and you right. don't seem to take them personally. Is that something you learn to do or are you faking it or what's going on there? Um, yeah, no, it's funny. I, you know what? As long as they're wrong, I don't mind. It's when they're right, I'd be, I'm worried about about it. You know, if they say something that's ludicrous or call it like you were saying, whatever that is, I mean, it's okay when they're wrong because I just feel it doesn't stick. Right. Uh, it's if they're right that I got to really worry about it. Right. 
Yeah. And, and again, that's the, that's the game you play if you're putting something that's popular into the culture, whatever yeah. it is, whatever you may be putting in the culture. Yeah. It could just literally be a tweet or Facebook post. Once it's out there, it's no longer yours. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important lesson that I didn't learn until yeah. Sex of Dawn was out. And it's like, and the other thing is that people have a relationship with, well, we, we covered this a little bit earlier, but people have a relationship with whatever it is you produce that really isn't your business. You know what I mean? It's, it's a personal thing that they're doing. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's strange. It's a, yeah, 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 it's funny. I was reading a book by the guy who wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Uh, Richard Bach. Richard Bach, yeah. And he was saying that, um, yeah, that it's, no one is interested in him or who he is. They're interested in whatever he represents to them. Right. And that's their meaning for him, and he doesn't want to, ever take, want to take that away. Yeah. Like, that's it, and it has nothing to do with that. Right. You don't want to take it away, but you also don't want to participate in it. Yeah. You know, because then it becomes your meaning. And right. And it was never really intended. So you, and, I, and I bet that happens, that's, that also happens with love, with just two people meeting. Right. Because someone projects all the things they want onto somebody else, so it happens to everybody. Yeah. Right? And then you love them and want to fit into that role, and there's always that period from you know, three to six months in when, when you have the realization that, oh, they're not, you're not who I thought I was. And Joseph Campbell has a great line where he says, people say, oh, you're not who I thought I was, you're different. I, they, they, you know, they see the flaws in this and they feel disillusioned, disillusioned by my partner. And he says, like, that's great. It's good to be disillusioned. Be dispelled of your disillusions and see who the person is. Right. That, to me, is the best part of the relationship. When I talk to people who only haven't had a relationship longer than six months, I'm like, oh, you've not been comfortable with the reality of who someone is. Yeah. Yeah, you don't even meet them until six yeah. months in or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah you're just, you're, there's that empty space in one's heart and you're trying to, you've had this template of what you think is going to fill it. Yeah. And it's insane. Like, again, I, I gotta, like, the, the, the book's a lot about relationships and love and so it's made me think about all these, all these ideas we have in the, in the culture that are just completely wrong and keep us yeah. from each other, including having, including all these ideas about who that person should be, and I don't know, I was doing a book signing, and the, this guy last night, or two nights ago, was saying, oh, I can't find the right person because I've got all these four circles of friends, and I can't find someone who accepts them all. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, well, what if you find an awesome person, the best person in the world, but they only accept three out of four of your circles? So live with it. Don't, don't, the four circle doesn't have to hang out with her. Like, like, she doesn't have to, she's, if, someone do, if someone doesn't accept all of you, probably a good thing because they're being real with you, right? Mm. You do, do you want, do you want a, uh, do you want a worshiper or do you want a partner? Right, right. And, I, and that, that's this illusion that uh, you fall in love and it's complete. Everything will be complete then. She'll love everything about you. She'll right. love all your friends. Like, that's not the way the world works. You'll never get the perfect yeah. job. Or there's, the, there's only one person who maybe should be doing that mm. or two, which are your parents. Mm. You know, so I think when per- people parentify their yeah. partner, right. uh, that's when, you know, again, Esther, uh, Esther Perel was there last night and talking about her theories of, you know, distance and all these things. But I think the thing, biggest thing that gets in the way of, uh, of passion and sex growing, we were talking about this the other day, is when people parentify the partner mm. unconsciously and you don't want to have sex with your mom and dad. Right. Most right. people. Is this, would you say this is the first time you've been in love? Uh, I think I thought I was in love many times, but this is the first time I've really, I've really been capable of it. Yeah. I, I know that sounds weird to say, but I really thought I was in love and I would pay lip service to love, but a part of me would just use distancing techniques so I just didn't get too close and feel like I was going to get swallowed or lost. Yeah. This is the first time I've really gone in without fear and with like kind of healthy, um, a healthy uh, perspective on who is she, who am I, and who is the relationship. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's interesting the extent to which really connecting with someone does require a, a, a detachment in a way. Not detachment in the self-protective, walling yourself off way, but in the Buddhist sense of not, um, uh, not clinging to something and not allowing things to change, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think Buddhism, 
I'm not a Buddhist, I wouldn't say it, but what I love about Buddhism is anyone can say they're a Buddhist and nobody gives a shit. Right, right, yeah. There's no secret handshake. There's yeah. no, like, you know, oh, you're a Buddhist? Okay, you're a Buddhist. Welcome. You know, yeah. whatever. Right, right, right. It, to me, no one's like, I'm backing off a little bit before you, you know, espouse your Buddhist beliefs on me. <laughs> unless, again, unless you're in, like, uh, China or something. Oh, right, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah. No, yeah. California Buddhism it's, it involves yeah. crystals and shit. Right. You, we made a note earlier, something about you wanted to ask something when we were in the Bruce Springsteen thing, and something about people being born. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah thank. You. Oh man, you're so good. It's funny too because you were, you were. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm tracking everything too. You were about to say something like, oh wait, wait, let me say something. So I don't know what it was. I was in the middle of the story about that too. So I cut you off of a thought, oh, which has probably gone out the window. So yeah. here's my thought. Yeah. So I just had a child with with my wife, uh, and you know, there's the theory that um, that you know, children are born kind of early, unformed because so their heads can grow later. Otherwise, you know, their heads too big and won't fit out. But my thought is, my thought, and again, this is just my wacky thought from having a child, but my thought is, well, evolution also could just made uh, our body, you know, our sexual organs larger, right? And then they could have waited and it could have happened. Why not? My feeling is, and again, based on no science research, evolution just sort of watching a child, my feeling is because we live in so many different climates and cultures that maybe they're more, uh, children are born with their brain less forms, they can be adaptable to whatever environment they're born into. Is that true? Well, I think it's true on a neurological level as far as like the size of the cranium, you know, I don't know to what extent that matters. Um, what I've, the argument I've read along those lines is that if the woman's pelvis were any wider, it would be very difficult for her to walk upright. Right. But, but yeah, that, that's the argument I've read. And what I'm the, the theory, theory I'm proposing based on nothing is, is that those are always the best. Right, yeah. Is that is that it really has nothing to do with that? Uh, because again, we, there, there's plenty of science that shows it's not the size of the brain. It's like you know the folds and the density and right. all this. Right. Uh, you know um, that it's actually so the child can uh, make its a lot of it the architecture of its brain based on what the environment is. Yeah. Okay, what do, do I have to? Uh, struggle in this environment, it's a cold environment, right. it's a hot environment. What, what kind of the environment it is so I can be right. really adaptable because then we can, you know, infect the planet like we have. And, and the cultural environment, right? right. What, what is it that these people are good at that I right. need to be good at? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that that's un, indisputably true. And I always think of babies as being like when you first buy a new computer and, you know, you're setting it up and it says, you know, okay, what language are you using? What part of the world are you in? Well, the reason it does that is because the hard drive is full of every language in the world. Right. And so the first thing it does is erase, you know, 99% of what's on there to clear up space for you to put new shit in. I feel like babies are like that. Like, they're born with the capacity to be anyone. Yep. You know, like, 10 could have learn Chinese right out of the gate. He'd yep. be like the most Chinese, you know, baby as anyone. And he happened to have been born in Malibu, so he's going to be the Malibu kid, you know, right. speaking American <laughs> English. stoner surfer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, no, no, I, think that, I think that's so true. And in fact, if I was to say like there's a theme or idea of the, of, of the new book is that, uh, and it's really not, it's the subtext. It's not even in there. Not one article has mentioned this. But uh, it's, I love your metaphor of the operating system and you're born with this great, clean, perfectly programmed operating system, and uh, and then like some various bugs are put into that operating system in yeah. the first 17 years. Yeah. And the question, like to me, one of my goals in life is, can I identify the bugs and quarantine them? And that's kind of really mm. like maybe what each book is about. Yeah, yeah. And your 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 books are so revealing, so personally revealing, and yet you're. A quite private person. Weirdest thing. It is weird. Yeah, yeah no, I know. I think about that. Like, I really, I will say, I'll say things in the book that I don't, don't even, even have never even told anyone in my life. There are yeah. things in this new book I've never told anyone in my life. Yeah. Even like, yeah, it's very weird. So that that's an interesting relationship that you have with your readers, right? You know, so you've got like maybe one of the most intimate relationships in your life is with people you, you'll never meet. Yeah, that's that, that 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 clearly speaks to a disorder, a bug in the operating well, I system. I don't know. I don't yeah. know if it does. Yeah, I think uh, it's courageous. Right. This book is really fucking courageous, man. I mean, seriously, yeah, you, you know, I, both my parents are alive, and there are things <clears throat> that I w- won't write or even talk about on the podcast right. 
as long as they're alive. Right. Um, but it's funny how, oh, they're dead, now it's okay. Well, yeah, because, because then the relationship you have with them can't be affected by whatever it is you say. So, so, it's, a, so it's a selfish, self-serving thing in a way. I'm just exploring, like, because other people have said that. Like, I couldn't do it when bones are dead, it's okay. Like, why is that okay? It's still the same story, it's still the same people. People are still going to have the same thoughts about them. Yeah, but they won't. But they, right, so stab them in the back, not... You know what I'm saying? Like it's stab them when they're dead. Stab them when they're dead. <laughs> yeah, it won't hurt them if I stab them when they're dead. Exactly. Right. I'll mutilate the body. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's a good expression. Well, just, this is getting real Freudian real yeah, fast. Here. Exactly. <laughs> That's interesting. But yeah, I mean, this book is certainly going to affect your relationship with your parents. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. It'll bring it into reality, and now let's see what happens. Yeah. As an example. Uh, you know, Ingrid, my wife, read the book, and really it's every shitty thought I've ever had about her love, sex, our relationship is in there. Every horrible thing I've done is in there. And her reading was the best thing that ever happened to us. Like, the best thing, I mean, there's for sure, there were a couple days where we had to work through stuff and talk through stuff and understand it. It didn't, might not have felt good. Yeah. Uh, but now she knows me. Right. And knows everything and feels so much safer being, oh, oh, that that was all. I don't have to guess what you're thinking or what you've done. Or, right. You know, I know, I know who you are, and I still. Ex- I mean, that really, in some ways, and never thought about this till this moment. Maybe in some ways, that's love. Is I know who you are. Right. And I still accept you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. as you are. Right. Yeah, that's love, and that's being loved. Right. Yeah. That's allowing yourself to actually feel loved, like she knows it. Right. Yeah. And so, we're, when two people feel that same way about each other. Yeah, uh, that's love because so many people protect their partners from stuff. And my question is, you know, I don't know if it's protection. It feels like maybe it's control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. It, uh, we were talking about that last night with like, you know, guys who pretend they're not looking at porn. Right. Like you're an adult man living in your yeah. own house. Right. And you're sneaking around pretending you don't look at porn. Like, yeah. just fess up to it. Yeah, I love it. I, I love it. I'm really open about it with Ingrid. Yeah. And she might sometimes say, what were you watching? I want to know. I'll show her what I was watching, and then we'll discuss it. Or sometimes right. we'll watch it together, and she'll, like, yeah. you know, we'll, you know, end up getting, putting it down and getting each other off. Yeah. Uh, well, watching or, porn together you know, is a great thing it's for a, great a relationship. Thing. And, and if you can have, like, if you can just be shame-free about it, because mm. the shame certainly doesn't, you know, that make it healthy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I want to, and it does also requires uh, being with someone who's secure in themselves that they know, oh, they're not watching that because they like that better than me. Yeah, the why, why am I not enough question is such a weird question. Yeah. It makes no sense. What was Esther's answer to that last night? It was good. I don't remember. And she was talking about people say, why am I not enough? And why, you know, and... and uh, oh, yeah, she was saying, like, you know, it, nobody's enough. Right. You know, you're supposed to fulfill all these... Roles that normally take an entire community, right? And you're and you're just enough, yeah. Yeah, I think that's like one of the fundamental questions of human existence. You know, am I enough? Like that's one of the fundamental kind of dilemmas. Well, the answer is no, right? And the answer is (laughs) my answer is uh, uh, not enough is just enough. Yeah. Yeah, well, and if you're not enough, maybe the other person's asking for too much. Right, or just yeah. or anything in life. Like, yeah. you know, am I enough as being your career, as yeah. a person, as a good person, as a, uh, uh, whatever it is. And, they, and like you said, it's, like, it's kind of like saying, am I perfect? You yeah. know, like, yeah. well, no, you're not, but you're perfectly imperfect. But you're Chuck Berry. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You invented <laughs> rock and roll, man. You're Chuck yeah. fucking Berry. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so side note, so he was saying, like, this is my, my and, and this isn't any books, but he was really talking about um, rock, rock. We had this great interview. Like, he's, he's ordinarily very cantankerous. Yeah. And uh, they said, you know, it might just be 10 seconds. You don't know what's going to happen. We talked for like two hours, and after a show, we talked for like a couple hours more. And he might be out to his place. Like it was the longest interview he's ever done since like I don't know, wow. like thirty or forty years. So he like opened up a lot of all this stuff, and and here's how how we kind of came to the conclusion of him figuring out rock. You know that I was really trying to kind of figure it out. Uh, and he says he would go to these segregated clubs, and uh, you know, uh, um, you know, as he puts it, you know, the blacks would be on one side, the whites would be on the other side. Is what he would say. And he said, like, the, the white people wanted uh, uh, 
the R&B and uh, the black people, as he put it, wanted hillbilly music, right? So he's playing kind of country to one side. One side wants country, the other side wants R&B, and he's like trying to make them both happy and thus rock and roll. Really? Did you ever see the thing where he's on stage with John Lennon and John brings Yoko? Yes, yes, it's uh, uh, the Mike Douglas show. Oh, man. Bill Burr, the comedian, yeah. does this amazing uh, thing with that. He was so pissed off. Right. Like, fucking Yoko's banging a, I don't know if it was a cowbell yeah, or it's a like her yodeling or like her, 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 like, her, like, <laughs> She yeah. screamed. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's great watching his face close up. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was talking, uh, uh, Rick Rubin, the producer, is, yeah. in, is kind of like in the new book is in terms of a person really giving me sound advice. Yeah. And we were talking about, before we interview Chuck Berry, there's a scene, Chuck Berry, is, uh, there's a documentary on Chuck Berry, and he gets in this fight with Keith Richards, and everyone feels like Chuck Berry's cantankerous, and he's yelling at Keith, and this and that. And Rick goes, I actually watched it, and Chuck was right, his point was right. Mm. Uh, so I don't know, it's, it's an obscure reference, but if you watch it, all hail rock and roll. There's this famous, yeah. you just watch that scene with Keith Richards, and, it, and watch it with a new perspective that, that Chuck was actually right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, you were talking about revealing self-revelation and and the importance of that within your marriage. Uh, there's a lot of very personal stuff about Ingrid in this book right. too, and, yeah. and her family, and yeah. you know where, where she came from psychologically, and where she, you know, why she is the way she is. How does that work? You know, because like if you were an actor in the public eye, she could just hang out and have her private have her privacy more or less intact, right? But in this case, the light's shining on, on her private life as well. And how, she, how did you negotiate that with her? Like, what I mean, were those I, conversations like? Oh, I, I don't think I, I think I just started writing the book and those were in it. And I showed it to her to make sure it was okay, both okay and correct. Uh-huh. And, uh, and she t- said, seems correct, or this thing should maybe be different. But there was no thought about Oh, I'm not sure if I'm okay with this. Oh, really? Yeah, she, there wasn't any thought about that. But I also think some, maybe I'm able to do this because I never think anyone's going to read it, you know? Or I, even I'm writing it thinking that people are going to read it, I never think it's going to be real, I'm going to have to answer for it, or, you know, whatever. I'm just sort of... You've maintained that, even after the game. Yeah. Because for me, you know, I'm working on my second book, right? right? When I was writing the first one, I couldn't imagine anyone was going to read it. I, right. I hadn't had that experience. But here you are, after having written a book that, what, what over a million copies right. are sold in yeah. the U.S., right? Yeah. And then it's all over the world. And you still hold on somehow to that, like, performing to a dark theater kind of feeling? Yeah, because, I mean, I'm not thinking, I'm just not thinking about the point after publication. Right. Right, it's just me, I'm just alone for years with this idea and this stuff and yeah. working it through and working it through. So it's, it's an abstract process and I don't deal with the reality of it being published, mm. you know, till later. Cause it's, till now. Till, till now, yeah. <laughs> it, it also gets in your way. Yeah. I think if you're thinking about the marketing while you're in the creative period, right. it hurts the creative period as a form of uh, procrastination. Um, you know, like you, right? I, creative, you gonna... <laughs> I just, I just, <laughs> you, like, oh, the t-shirts. Yeah, yeah, Chris has his, I'm sure you've talked about it here, right? <laughs> These are the people who buy the t-shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but, the, but, the, but, the, I, but, and you talk about how it's, you probably talk about how it's just, <laughs> you recognize the ludicrousness of it. By the way, I love your Sex at Dawn t-shirts. I, Ingrid and I wear ours all the time. They're, they're really good t-shirts. Sure design, baby. Yeah, yeah, no, they fit well. They Tied. look good. They're yeah. one of my favorite T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. yeah great. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I think, I think that's really funny. Um, but yeah, so basically, uh, that that gets in the way. The other thing is, you don't know. You literally have no idea what's going to happen when you put something out. You don't know how it's going to be taken, how it's going to be read. If it's popular, you really can't predict it. Like mm. you don't know, so you might as well write the book you you know, or do the art project you really want to do yeah. because you got no idea and the more you try to engineer if you try to engineer something for what somebody you think people want um, you're just reacting to something that's happening right then in the culture anyway and by the time right. you put it out you'll be too late anyway so right. Right. you don't know and, uh, uh, and I know I keep talking about Rick only because again we he's such a part of this new book he says that great artists um, have uh, like you know an antenna that's just really up and sensitive to just what's happening and they just tune into that versus trying to figure out what are people going to like, what are they not going to like, what's right. happening. Like, so it's, a, it's sort of a, a longer term prediction. It's not next week, it's where's the culture going 
Yeah. On a large scale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did when you were writing the game, did was there ever a moment when you were when you thought, fuck, this this is gonna be big? Never. Never occurred to you. No, my image was I'd be in a book because I'd done books before with all these kind of rock stars. Yeah. And I, you know, and and there were just always lines around the corner, people going crazy, like you know. And again, like they could have like, you know, whatever, like done a coloring book where they just you know, <laughs> you know, filled in a coloring book, and there still would have been a line around the block, right? Right. So, so I thought, shit, this is my first book that's really my own, and I just really had this picture before it came with me at the bookstore. Uh, and I'm sitting there, and you know, you're at the table alone, and nobody's there. And some little lady walks up because she feels sorry for you, and she's like, "Maybe I'll get this for my grandson," you know. And I'm all excited <laughs> to sign it for her. That was that was really my image. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, you mentioned your brother in the book a couple times. Yeah. Uh, what's your relationship like with him? Yeah, we have a good relationship. And I actually really? said, "Hey, do you want to read the book early? So you know what's going on?" And he's like, "He's like, I don't want to touch that." Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Because, yeah, it sounds like, was he aware of what it was like for you when you were growing up? Mm, I don't think so. He's a little more sort of like oblivious or, 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 or distant, you know, with, yeah. that, with that stuff. So, no. And it's funny, like, a lot of things, there's a lot of study stuff on birth order and how birth order changes your, right. your personality and, you know, the, and a lot of theories that the older... The older child tends to be closer to the father. The second one tends to be closer to the mother. The third one's kind of like the peacekeeper, or standard bearer, and then maybe uh, so. There's a lot of theories on that. The older one tends to be, uh, you know, more cerebral. The second one tends to be more kind of heart based. Right. And and, uh, and a lot of things change with birth order. Parents treat you differently. Right. They also make all their mistakes on the first. <laughs> right. Me being the first. <laughs> you know, because I, I mean, I even think now as a new parent, like obviously. We're learning all this stuff for the first time, and you're better at it the second time. Yeah, yeah. Do you anticipate having more kids? Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd like to have, like, one more, because then he has a friend or someone yeah. to play with or someone to connect with. It's nice to have someone who's there. Yeah. Do you have, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have uh, one younger sister. Oh, cool. Where's she? In L.A. Oh, really? Have I met her before? Uh-uh. uh-uh. You purposely kept her apart? No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what did she do? She uh, works with... Um, uh, kids who are aging out of the foster care system. Great. Yeah. I honestly think, like, I want, I really, that, it's so broken, that system, man. Like, and we, like, we, seriously, like, why not spend the energy that you spend talking about, like, whatever, our book, spend it talking about the fucking, fo- I mean, it's insane. It's an institutional system where children get habitually abused yeah. and, and used and messed up. And and that's 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 it's insane. And then they turn eighteen, and it's like, oh, good luck with you. Yeah, it's insane. You Get out. Insane. Yeah. Like, I makes you want to have a revolution. Yeah. Yeah. The way the way this culture treats kids and mentally ill people, it's the vulnerable. It's and so hypocritical. The, wow. Like all these kind yeah. of like right wing people. What about the kids? What yeah. about the fucking kids? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I would like. Yeah, every life's sacred. Yeah, as long yeah. as you're not born yet. Yeah, so. the other thing for the second child is maybe we're thinking we should foster or adopt or something for the second child. And we were talking last night, um, and I think it's so true that you know having the child maybe realize that one of those myths that you explode, that you kind of explode. And I love that is if someone just dropped the child off at my doorstep and it wasn't my genetic material, I would love it just just as much. So there would be absolutely no difference, yeah. Yeah. you know. And I didn't I didn't realize that till you know I had it. Child. Yeah, well, that that's one of the things, like one of the core concepts in the standard narrative, what we call the standard narrative in Sex at Dawn, is that, you know, a man would would only, like there are all these mechanisms <clears throat> to assure that he's only investing in his biological child right. because that fits in the sort of Darwinian economics of genetics, you know, that like my DNA has to pass on to the next generation and all that. But the reality is... Like, I don't even have children, but I love kids. I love right. my friend's kids, you know? And if, if, you know, my friend's kid was running into the traffic, I wouldn't be thinking, well, it's not my kid. Fuck <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the way human beings right. are. More, more of not my genetic material. Yeah, what around. do I care? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this just increases the odds of my genetic offspring, <laughs> you know, fair. dominating the planet. More food for my kids. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, you know, like the guy last night at the signing is the last question. Like, room for one more question is always going to be the worst question to end on. <laughs> and he goes, well, I'm worried about having an open non-monogamous relationship because what if, uh, you know, my partner gets pregnant with someone else's kid? That was a weird question. It was a weird question. And the the answer was, 
love it. Yeah. Or love him or her. Yeah. You know, just love him or her. It's a, it's a child you can, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That, that question really came out of left field. I, I thought I wasn't understanding it properly, right. but then it seemed like. I think that, that was just, his, that was just his, his, uh, his fear. His concern, yeah. 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 Interesting backstory there, probably. Yeah. My, my problem with interviews lately is, uh, like, when the journalist is asking questions, I'll usually say that question is like, I mean, I'll usually psychoanalyze their questions. You know, yeah. and it's really bad. Like, I'll say that question. I'll say, here's this question is all about you. Yeah. And, like, how you think about the world. And it's interesting because, like, it's fascinating. You keep asking, like, these three questions that are all related to this theme. Yeah. And they really say a lot about you. How, are you doing any psychotherapy now? Uh, yeah, you know, I read a book that, uh, by a Jungian analyst named James Hollis. Uh, he's, he has a great book called The Eden Project. By the way, his, his writing is horrible, mm. but his ideas are amazing. Mm. So they're like they're dense, but just I've never underlined a book so much. So one's called The Eden Project about uh, love. Another one that I read is uh, Under Saturn's Shadow about uh, the wounding of men. Uh, but his stuff is so great. And so I looked him up, and I saw he's still alive. He's 73. He lives in, I think, D.C. And so I called him. So I, so I reached out to him. I said, Man, I love your books. I would love for you to be my therapist. You just sometimes you just gotta try, right? Mm. He's like, Well, I'm really broke, but if you kinda can kinda like go on a week by week basis, I'll tell you what time I'm open. And so I just talk to him and it's like just kneeling at the feet of a incredibly wise. That's cool. You person. do it on Skype or uh just on the phone, yeah. On the phone. Yeah. Right. But I think um it's nice maintenance. I mean, by the way, I'm not a big believer in talk therapy for mm. change. Right. Uh but uh but it's it could, sometimes it's nice to kind of get Centered if you get caught up in your own stuff. I don't think I personally, again, many people may differ with me, but, uh, but I think whatever is the trauma that bugs in your operating system often start getting in there, uh, you know, before you have language, rational thought, and you're, you know, and, yeah. and so they're, and, they're, and a lot of them are being stored emotionally. We talk about psychology, we think it's of the mind, but I really think a lot of it is feelings yeah. uh, and, and emotional wounds. And so I, there are a lot of, Therapies that go straight to the feelings and emotions, and sometimes I really feel like if you're not feeling and releasing stuff. Maybe you're not changing. So I think there's much better. I think the whole system is is is, is messed up and doesn't work and doesn't get any support from, you know, the government or health insurance. Obviously, uh, so I feel like of all like look we. I mean, the public school system is fucked, but at least we're like, okay, you're going to learn some shit. You know, the, the, hospital, the hospital medical system is fucked, but at least we're like, you're going to get healthy. There's no system where you're going to get emotionally intelligent or emotionally healthy. There is nothing, yeah. nothing, nothing that's institution, nothing that's, nothing in our culture supports that. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you ever heard of John Sarno, the uh, no. back pain? No. He's, um, he was an uh, orthopedic surgeon here at Columbia University in New York. And he's treated thousands of people, and um, he, he noticed that people would have back pain located in areas where there was a bulging disc or some mm. anomaly. But then when he examined people, he found a lot of people who had anomalies but no pain. Right. And so he started thinking, like, well, what's the relationship then? Why does it hurt some people and not other people? And eventually he came to the conclusion that, I don't remember, it's 80 or 90% of all back pain is psychogenic. Right. It, it's people who are stressed out. They've got fear. They've got something going on in their relationships, and the so the anxiety expresses through uh, physical weakness. So it's almost like you know where does it burst through? It bursts through at the weak point. Right. And so the doctor looks at that and says, "Oh yeah, you've got a bulging disc. You know we need to do surgery here." But actually, what's happening is that the person there's something out of balance in the person's emotional life. But the way the culture is, you don't get help until it manifests physio- physiologically. Right, 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 right. You know, and then and then they feel well. At least they're being cared for. At least somebody's touching them. You know, and there's something being done to help them, even though it's completely unrelated in a way to you know, or at least the relationship is three steps distant from the origin of the problem. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Yeah, there's a cartoon that Ingrid recently sent me in this. It says like the top physical illness, and someone goes, "I'm going to die." They're like, we'll get you to a hospital right away. And it says mental illness. I'm going to die. And someone says, don't worry about it. A lot of people have it worse than you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's funny. But, but I, I do. I would love to see that taken more serious. I wrote an editorial for the New York Times. We'll see if they run it or uh, but about that. It'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I probably got to go. What time is it? It's 7.35. Yeah, I guess I got to go, man. Yeah, I feel like this was a nice, compact, packed. It was much better than our <laughs> golf cart ride. 
Let's admit it. This was a good conversation. Okay, but the golf cart ride was fun. Yeah, it was yeah, funny. Yeah, it, yeah, it was just, really noisy. We spared you. Yeah. This was great audio, I think. Yeah, yeah. The other one, we were like in windy, riding on a golf cart. Right. It was really annoying to, to listen to. That was a podcast we recorded like six months ago. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was kind of fun and goofy, like tooling around Malibu on a, on yeah. a golf cart or something. Yeah. That sounds like um, uh, yeah, that's our life, driving around. Well, I read one of, one of the reviews. But, but I don't own a car. I just own a golf cart. What, yeah, the Corvette's yeah. just sort of sitting there gathering dust. Yeah, we're, we're trying to sell it. So yeah, that's like a game purchase. Yeah. <laughs> a 1972 old <laughs> By the way, the, yeah. What? Oh, no, I, I was just... Uh, um, you want to tell us how much the car costs? Is that what it is? Is this no. a Craigslist ad? What's that? You're going to do a Craigslist yeah, ad yeah. on my phone? It was an interesting ad. By the way, you know, it was the last deal. year. They got the chrome bumpers. Nice. That yeah. cost a lot. Of the cool thing is the greatest. Like, it's the greatest body shape of a car. It's so yeah. it's got it's, it's body shape. shark-like. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is predatory. Yeah, I guess. It, I guess it, you know when you're when you're selling the uh, the uh, the vintage. You're selling the vintage muscle car means you're becoming a dad, huh? For me, it was a motorcycle. Right, right. Yeah, I never became a dad, but but it did happen when I got together with Cassie. Right. And not that she demanded that I get rid of it or anything, but um, we almost died. Right. And I had, you know, I had always felt like, well, if I die, whatever. You know, I die. Everyone's going to die, right? Right. Um, But... When it happened, when she was on the back, suddenly it was completely different. It's like, what? She's a mother, you know? If she dies, it matters. She's a doctor. There are thousands of people she's going to help in her life. And if we die on this fucking motorcycle, those people are going to not be helped. And her daughter's going to be alone. And, you know, like, now it matters. Yeah, it's nice to have something to live for. Yeah, yeah. We'll end on that note. Perfect. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.